0: Father, we thank you for the anticipation that awaits all true believers as the horizons of our future open up to the glorious promises of eternal life in Christ Jesus, where the fullness of redemption will take shape in the gathering of all the saints, of all the elect, across the landscape of all history. From before uh, you arrived in the incarnation, those who looked forward by faith in the coming Messiah, whose faith was accounted to them as righteousness, All the way through to those who point to that redemptive act in the incarnation where Christ took on flesh, fully God and fully man died in our place, was crucified, suffered and beaten and buried, but then rose again and ascended victorious over sin in the grave to ever reign and rule. We thank you, Lord, that our future is one of co-regency with him. We will rule and reign with Christ because of his work on Calvary, because of his work in our hearts. Now, as we turn to your holy word and we see the beautiful tapestry of your plan and decree working out its way through all of history, I pray that we would be moved to worship, that we would be moved to faithfulness, encouragement, strength in a day where there are many doubters, that we would shine all the brighter in that day, that the light would push back the darkness A few cannot quench the light if they shine on a hill. For the glory of Christ, no matter how far the darkness might seek to encroach, it cannot win. This is the triumph, the glorious triumph of our Lord through his church. We thank you that the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. Now as we turn to the means that will equip and strengthen us for this task, I pray that the Spirit would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, our mind to comprehend the glorious truths within your pages of Scripture and that we might be moved again to honor you, to praise you, for of you and through you and to you are all things In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, as we open the word of God, we turn to Genesis chapter 12. Would you turn there with me today? Excuse me, Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, verse 10 through 12, 3 will be our primary text today. The title of this morning's message will be Significant Sons. And the aim of today's sermon is to recognize the milestones of sovereign history fulfilling God's word. I believe Genesis 11 and 12, in fact, the entire book is structured, it's ordered in such a way that the movement of the text, the linear pathway that the unfolding events take is in the form of milestone to milestone, act of God in the experience of mankind, pointing to him, giving him glory, and revealing to us the way of salvation, the plan of redemption. Thus, we have a philosophy or a shape, a pattern to history that is identified for us in the book of Genesis. We've spoken of this several times in our text. Today, I suggest, I submit, is no exception Therefore, may we recognize some of these milestones in our text today and see them for what they are. They are the evidence of God's sovereign hand, ordering all things according to the purpose of his will in order to save for himself a people and to give him glory forever and ever. Indeed, the milestones of sovereign history, fulfilling his holy word. Would you stand once again this morning out of reverence for God's holy word as we read these scriptures together? Listen as they are proclaimed in your hearing today. This is Genesis 11, verse 10. Here we have the infallible word of our Lord. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad. Two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah, and Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived thirty years, he fathered Eber, and Shelah lived after he fathered Eber four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived thirty-four years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg four hundred and thirty years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Riu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Riu 209 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Riu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sareg, and Riu lived after he fathered Sareg 207 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Sareg had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sareg lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the name of Haran, the the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. 12.1 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Praise the Lord for his holy word. A little pop quiz for the young people. First of all, who are the three sons of Noah? Young people, Noah's three sons? Yeah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Very good. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right. Now, we have identified three phrases that summarize the legacy of each one of those sons. So, another quiz for you young ones. What was Japheth known for? It's Japheth and the coastlands. coastlands. See if somebody else can answer the next one. Ham and the city builders. City builders. Somebody else, um, uh, Shem and the who said it? Uh, awesome, significant sons. Uh, that comes from a message several weeks ago or three sermons ago in our Genesis series entitled Lands Languages Clans and Nations. There was a table of nations given to us or a list of the various people groups dispersed from Babel as preceding the Babel account nevertheless identifying these different ethnicities that had their origins there in Genesis chapter 10. They're listed in three categories according to the sons of Noah. First we have Japheth and they are identified as the coastland peoples. This becomes significant through the course of scripture. Uh, secondly, they're the sons of Ham. These were the city builders. The fact that nations dispersed through the far reaches after Babel is testimony to the identity of the Japheth peoples. They went the furthest in most cases, therefore, they're identified with the corners, the far reaches, the distant lands, the coastlands, that is. Uh, secondly, the legacy of Ham is in the record itself, where Nimrod was a great forefather of the Ham legacy. Uh, However, Nimrod was not a godly man. He was a strong man of a different sort, a city builder, a war hero, a mighty man, a hunter before the Lord. Some translations say in the face of the Lord, as if Ham used his strength, influence, and his uh, leadership to defy the Lord. And that's exactly what he did in the building of great cities where man sought refuge in what they could accomplish rather than God's salvation provided through his covenant. Now, the legacy of Ham unfolds in the next chapter, even more specifically, with the building of the city and tower of, does anyone know? Babel, Babel, that's correct. Uh, During the time of Peleg, when the earth was divided, the tower of Babel was constructed as the quintessential, if you will, or the classic ideal of the city of man, purchasing salvation by his own strength. Thus, we see the legacy of Ham moving forward through history in uh, in the ambition of city building. This brings up number three, Shem. The godly line, the elect line, the son of promise, the significant son. Shem's line would be identified by significant figures, redemptive figures, if you will, types of Christ, if you will, individuals who point forward to a significant son to come. Hence the title of this morning's message as Genesis picks up on this legacy. Genesis 11:10. 10, these are the generations of Shem and from them will come, yes, significant sons. The structure of the Genesis narrative allows for a Google Earth view, if you will, of the landscape of historical or history of redemption. Uh, Who's used Google Earth? You ever seen on the computer? It's as if you can see the world, perhaps your state or a country from way, way up in the sky, as high as a satellite. And then you hit a button and you click and you zoom in and you can continue to do that until all you see is your yard, your house, and the tent that you've set up in your in the back, or whatever. Well, if you use that as an analogy, it's a way to describe the kind of overview picture of history the author Moses Je- of Genesis gives. There are these moments when he steps back and gives you the Google Earth view from thousands, from satellite perspective, if you will, and then there are times where he clicks, if you will, and hits the Zoom feature, and then you see particular uh, details highlighted. So this Google Earth view of the landscape of the history of redemption is interrupted in our text today in chapter 12 with the zoom-in feature to record particular events in the life, life of an individual who will figure prominently in the family line and the legacy of the Messiah. This overview slash biographical approach helps us to appreciate the context uh, setting, the context setting the stage for the call of Abraham. So just by way of review, consider this. Corruption of the world's peoples, world's uh, peoples has welcomed full-scale destruction in the great flood. We've read of this in the story of Noah, of course. Noah's account ends in shameful disgrace. Remember the great prophet or the great prophetic hope, notwithstanding, however, this great savior of the people who was obedient was a man above reproach now finds himself in a drunken stupor and the nakedness of the father is, is unveiled and so forth. Man's self-styled salvation attempts crumbled at the Tower of Babel, leading to further loss of hope, humanistically speaking, as the monolithic cultural identity uh, is fragmented along with ethnicities that develop as people now having confused languages go to their respective places of dwelling. This would lead many to no doubt wonder, was the messianic hope also disintegrating? What about the promises to Noah? What about the prophecies of Lamech over his son Noah, the promise all the way back to Adam and Eve? Where was hope to be found in a world of these cycles of metastasizing sin, judgment coming, disintegration and distribution dispersion all over the earth. The answer is all hope lost is answered in our text with a decisive no. Was mankind hopelessly lost following Babel, condemned to aimlessly aimlessly wander like Cain for his sin? No. The line of Shem is preserved in the confusion of a broken and fallen world. Yes, the elect line lives on. And the genealogy that we read in our text today documents this. God has predestined a people and a plan, even as, ju- as a judgment page is turned in the history of a post-fall, post flood and now post babel world. God has predestined, again, a people and a plan, even as, as judgment has visited, in profound ways, a sin-ridden world. Uh, so young people, the older ones, were studying predestination this morning. Uh, can one of you young people uh, shout out the two aspects of predestination that you studied uh, today in your class? Two aspects of predestination. A little pop quiz, not to put you on the spot or anything. All right, well, let me give you, a, uh, give you a helpful hint. Election and uh, close. Uh, at least as far as the sound of the word, election and reprobation. Predestination refers to the sovereign plan of God. Young people have also been studying his decree. This is God's plan for all things in the counsel of his will, in his sovereign intention, in his goal and purpose, God has set his mind to accomplish all his holy will. Providence, it could be said, is the unfolding of his plan, his decree in history. And then even more narrower, still more narrow still his predestination with respect to his people is his calling and election of those who will be drawn out from the curse of sin unto the worship of his great name, who will receive salvation, whose hearts will be drawn by the Holy Spirit, who will experience the new birth in new covenant terms, who will be regenerated. This is all part and parcel of God's predestination. And we see this principle in our text today. God predestines a people and a plan, even though it seems like the whole world is in a state of chaotic fallenness and judgment. Even though the world is dispersed, people are going their separate ways, they can't even understand each other anymore. Nevertheless, the elect line of Seth is preserved. Preserved in our text today, generationally all the way until we get, zoom in on the legacy on the individual Abraham. So, In our text today, we see that in this uh, post-Fall and post babel world, furthermore, the early pages of Genesis not only record these events, but they lay out a paradigm or shape of sovereign history with regard to God, the Lord, Yahweh's redemptive purposes. Therefore, realizing and recognizing this encourages the church, us, even today, as we await some things that are yet future for us. Think of the second coming, for instance. So with that background, context, and history, let me give you a heading and perhaps four structure points of history we can appreciate in our text today. This is the heading. Signature history, heralding significant sons. Signature used as an adjective. If something is a signature work of art by an artist, you can tell by looking at that piece who made it. It is distinct to them. In the same way, there is a signature history. You can tell who made history, God. These events are distinct to him. He is the author, the finisher. He is the shaper. By his decree, he orders history. Signature history, heralding. That is to announce, to proclaim, or to even prophetically announce beforehand something to come. Signature history, heralding significant sons. Now, under this, There are four aspects, perhaps, that we can see of signature history. These are repeated. We'll touch on four moments through the Scriptures today as kind of paradigms or patterns in the shape of God's purposes as earth's history unfolds. Number one, prophetic promise. Prophetic promises occur through God's plan in history. That's a signature heralding significant sons. Secondly, there seems to be generations of waiting that God has ordained at each one of these moments, generations who are called to wait for that prophetic promise to unfold. Number three, there is opportunity to lose hope. Languishing hope, question mark. Is all hope lost? And then, which would be a testing, testing of the faith of those who are awaiting the promises. And then finally, number four, there's the covenant calling fulfilled of the significant son. Prophetic promise, generations of waiting, opportunity for hope to wane, and then finally covenant calling. Let's consider this in light of our text today and three other examples. This is going to be an overview message to try to see the pattern established here and then recognize it by other examples. One will be a prior one, the case of Noah. Two others will be future to our text today, the case of David, the case of Jesus. Four significant sons today we will consider. Abraham, Noah, David, and Jesus. Prophetic promise. Abraham. Consider in Genesis 9, 26, these words that we've covered before with respect to the Shemites. Noah prophesies over his sons after awakening from his drunken stupor. He says by the word of the Lord, cursed be Canaan. This is Genesis nine twenty five. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. But on the other hand, he also said, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be His servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So here is the prophetic uh, utterance from Noah. It's the prophetic promise. The promise is is that God will do extraordinary things through the line of Shem, so much so that there will be a testimony, a light, a refuge and habitation established through the legacy of that elect line. And this will not only be a blessing and benefit to Shem, but the blessing and benefit will extend, yes, even to the coastland peoples. So in the prophetic and poetic language, we can see that this light will go beyond the borders of one corner, one unique ethnicity or people, and there will be a refuge for many others, the Gentiles, if you will, to come into the tents of Shem as a result of this prophetic promise on the horizon. But where is this prophetic hope? Where is it in our text today? Well, it's starting to unfold, but there certainly were generations of waiting in the meantime. Notice also that this prophetic promise comes on the heels in the wake of sinful fallout. This promise that Noah gives, this testimony and prophecy, comes right after he is found shamefully in his tent Verse 21, Genesis 9, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. And as you recall, whereas the one brother exposed the nakedness of the father, the others sought to cover it. When Noah awoke from his wine, verse 24, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, thus proceeds his prophecy. The message here is that even in the wake of embarrassing and depraved sinful conditions, nevertheless, there is, there remains a prophetic hope. This is a signature of history, or this is signature history heralding a significant son to come. Somehow, some way, through the line of Shem, an important son to come will hold out hope for enlarging the tent so big that there would be a habitation and blessing for even distant peoples. Second example of prophetic promise. This is backtracking to Noah. And let's consider all the way back to Genesis 3.15. This has to be the first prophetic promise after the fall of redemption to come. I hope you're very familiar with this text. To make you even more familiar with it, let us read again. Genesis 3.15. The Lord is speaking in judgment over the serpent, but by implication... Prophesying redemption for mankind, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will come a significant son, yes, who will bruise the head of the serpent, head of the serpent, uh, Satan, the deceiver, the liar, the one who has tempted successfully mankind, to fall out of covenant and to commit sin, to break God's law and to usher in the future of mankind's depravity through their, the spiritual blood poisoning, thus as the covenant head of, the first, or of the, the first Adam as the covenant head responsible for the sinful condition in which all humans are now born into. But there is hope, there is a prophetic promise. In the wake of this great tragic event, this sin, this atrocity, this great depravity that is manifest in Adam and Eve's disobedience. Nevertheless, there will yet come an offspring, yes, from the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. Now, this was a prophetic promise. And one would have wondered, where is this to be found? Or where is hope to be found? And as mankind proceeds, we see all of this reason for discouragement. But there comes a time when Noah is a significant son in the line of God's redemptive purposes who fills, fulfills in part at least a signal event pointing toward this Messiah figure who would arrive yet future. Number three, prophetic promise as it relates to David. Turn to, chapter, or turn to Ruth chapter 4, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is uh, extremely important. It's a hinge point. It's a signal moment. Signature history, heralding significant sons, is really a theme in the book of Ruth. Now, I trust you know the story a little. There is a woman who is redeemed by a kinsman redeemer, if you will. She, a destitute foreigner, foreigner, is fated to live a life of hardship, obscurity, marginalization, uh, and so forth, but God's grace intervenes. Yes, we're speaking of Ruth who will be married to Boaz, who serves in this picture as her redeemer. And literally, in the cultural picture, or the cultural events of the time, her kinsman, redeemer. Note verse 11. After this marriage has been announced, we have this testimony from the people. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. So the affirmation of the peoples to Boaz comes by way of prophetic promise, at least prophetic hope. May this wife of yours, Ruth, may she be responsible through the birth of future children to the house of Boaz for building up the house of Israel. May the hope of Israel's future lineage, this is the line of Shem after all, remember, remember, though hundreds and hundreds of years in the future, may this child, may her children, carry forward the hope of the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Apathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. Would, the few, would a future child, would a significant son from the line of Ruth be renowned in Bethlehem? Can anyone think of an important son that was born in Bethlehem? Jesus, that is absolutely correct. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Hearkening back to another story, kinsman redemption. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may this name be renowned in Israel. May his name be renowned in Israel. So this is a prophetic promise, and this would come true, and it would come true uh, first and foremost in the birth of Israel's great king, David. Now, prophetic promise as it relates to a fourth significant, significant son, Jesus, turned to Malachi. Again, we're recognizing milestones of sovereign history, fulfilling God's word. And towards the close of this message, we'll see how this gives us great hope. Not only does this help us understand the continuity of Scripture, but it also gives us great encouragement as we realize the implications to be able to wait in our day. Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Again, remember post-exile situation. Uh, those words we just read from Ruth was in a post-judges lawless era situation. And we have this prophetic hope. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, Malachi 4.2, shall arise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked and there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Again, four examples in biblical history, signature history, identifying that history is God's stage upon which he will reveal himself, including his redemptive figures, significant sons, pointing forward to Christ. Abraham, Noah, David, and Jesus. All examples. Second major point this morning. A second event or milestone of signature history that announces, it heralds significant sons, generations of waiting. In our primary text this morning in Genesis 11, there is this hope again in the context that Noah had prophesied over his son Shem. But notice how many generations passed before there was a zoom in. And then the redemptive nature of a son, namely Abraham, a significant son, is highlighted. We had multiple, I think 10 generations are listed here. So when Shem was 100 years old, Genesis eleven ten, 10, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and other sons and daughters, so on and so forth. Now, there are some names that are recognizable in this text, like Eber, from which we get the term, scholars assume, Hebrews, uh, identifying Eber as in the elect line from whom the Hebrews eventually descended and so forth. And after him, Shelah, after him, Peleg, and uh, and Ryu, and Serug, and Nahor, and so forth, until we get to Terah. And let me ask you kids, a little trivia again, Teor, Tehor, uh, Excuse me, uh, Terah, who was his son? Can you name a significant son of Terah? I think I heard Abraham. That's correct. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, two brothers, and two brothers Nahor and Haran. Generations passed from the time of this prophecy of the blessing of Shem to the nations, Until Abraham came and then a certain fulfillment unfolds. I will bless you, make your name great. You will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through the events that take place in Abraham's life, through the covenant that God makes to this significant son, the promise is reiterated. The coastland peoples, all the families of the earth, the legacy of Japheth, uh, that which the legacy of Japheth represents, will be drawn into fellowship, communion, reunion, reconciliation with the purposes of God. The message of redemption goes forward, yet it is generations in coming. Noah. There were generations in between Genesis 3.15 and the calling of Noah, were there not? Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. He blessed them and named them man and they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. It goes on, thus were the days that Adam lived 930 years in verse 5 and he died. Then we have Seth, his record. Then we have Enosh, Kenan, Mahaliel. We have Jared, Enoch, so on and so forth. All the way to Lamech lived 595 years. Thus the days of Lamech were 777 years, verse 31, and he died after Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we have a record of the historic conditions on the earth, but we also have the calling of Noah. Then the Lord said to Noah in 7:1, Go into the ark, you and all your household, or of course, uh, verse 9, 6, 9 would be even more apropos to our context here. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. So from the prophecy of hope in Genesis 3:15 to the arrival of Noah, there were generations of waiting. Turn back to Ruth 4. And this account as well, in the story of Ruth, this is interesting because this formula that appears in Genesis, these are the generations. Um, is relatively rare outside of that book. But interestingly enough, in Ruth, it's reiterated. This is because a significant sun is on the horizon. It says in Ruth 4.18, Now these are the, are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered uh, Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. From the time of the depravity and the degradation of things, at the close of the book of Judges, where the people are all over the place in their lawlessness, there were generations in between that and when hope would come in the form of the office, the administration of David, Whom God, again, made a covenant with. Generations in between. Finally, Jesus, under generations of waiting, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Again, forgive me for these multiple references this morning, but I think it's important, as Genesis teaches us, to get this sort of Google Earth view, if you will. This view from kind of the satellite perspective of the work of God across the landscape of history. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. See if you recognize any of these names. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Azli, the son of Negei, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joach, for... Forgive my pronunciation on some of these. The son of Jodah, son of Jonah, and then it continues Resa, Zerubbabel, Sheltiel, Nerai, Melkai, Adai, Kohson, uh, Elmadam, Ur, Joshua, Eleazar, Joram, Mehat, Levi, Simeon, Judah, Joseph, Jonam, Eliakim, Mila, Mena, Mattatha, uh, Nathan, the uh, and here we have the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez and Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, son of Nahor. And it continues, Sarah, Grihu, Peleg, Eber, Shelah, Cain, Arpachid, Shem, Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, Mahaliel, uh, Canaan, uh, Enos, Seth, Adam, the son of God. In abbreviated form, we just went through the lineage of Jesus recorded in Luke chapter 3, and no doubt you recognize some repeat names. These lineages that we have been studying in Genesis chapter 5, in Genesis chapter 11, in Ruth chapter 4, these are included within the lineage of Christ, teaching us that signature history, heralding significant sons, comes in a, unfolds in a generational way. Just like the significant son, Jesus, the, the uh, prophetic promise of his arrival was preceded by God's sovereign preservation of the elect line. So again, prophetic promise, generations of waiting, thirdly, languishing hope. During these in-between times, When generations come and die, come and die, without that prophetic hope, obviously here arriving, manifold, fulfilled, and present, it can be very difficult. And this is why the scriptures call us, even in Hebrews chapter 4, even in Hebrews chapter 11, like the saints who preceded us, to walk by faith. Though we may not be the generation that is significant. You know, think of a quick word of application. Think of how we consider ourselves today. Think of the news and uh, uh, books that are written and autobiographies and biographies and the way we structure our media, the way we notice important things. Do we not, generally speaking, consider ourselves the most important generation of all? We have a narcissistic self-worship impulse as fallen sinners, to consider if anything significant is going to happen, it's going to come in our generation, by our means. This is a city of man impulse. We are going to build it. We are going to accomplish it. People seldom live in light of God's generational scope. If You have to consider yourself small in light of God's grand purposes to realize that you are one small dot on God's grand scale and scope of things, accomplishing his holy will. We'd like to believe that we are the apex. We are the fulfillment. We all of history, the world, the uh, universe, and anything of any importance revolves around us. And we seldom think in our sinfulness and our culture today beyond our own death, such that people are oftentimes more likely to raise pets than they are children these days for that simple reason. Uh, Our values are all screwed up because we fail to recognize that God works through generations. So... In times like these, it is a challenge and it does require hope. Hope can languish if we are tempted during these times of waiting. Think of Abraham, back to our text today. Genesis chapter 11. Did Abraham have opportunity to doubt? He certainly did. And all those who recognize that Abraham was in the line of Shem would have been worried as well by this little detail in the text, actually a huge glaring detail. Uh, Genesis 11, 29, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now notice verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. How will the elect line continue when Sarai is barren. Well, Genesis 12, God nevertheless promises miraculously that Abraham will be a light to many nations. Indeed, he will be the father as the covenant unfolds of many nations. God is setting up, even in this opportunity for hope to wane and for fear to enter and despair to wash across the mind and the mentality of his people. He is setting up a miracle that will demonstrate his glory and power. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. A barren woman shall rejoice and become the mother of children. This is a cry that is echoed repeatedly through the history of redemption. We see it in Hannah's situation. We see it in Elizabeth's situation. Another barren woman who rejoices as she becomes the mother of the son prophesied at the end of Malachi, the Elijah to come, That is the prophet who will pave the way in his ministry for the arrival of another son born this time of a virgin, Jesus Christ, who will be the significant son in the line of Abraham, in the line of Shem, in the line of Seth, that will hold out hope for the future of mankind. Nevertheless, you can can imagine how despondent and discouraged Abraham and Sarah might be in the future. As we cover their story, we will see How this sometimes stumbling faith works out in their lives. Legacy of descendants of Abraham also speak to this kind of waning hope. Even their names indicate things like struggle or seeking refuge or um, wandering. This legacy of the descendants of Shem does not seem like a strong uh, people who are well-equipped to be a beacon of hope, signaling that mankind will be preserved through them. No, they have to be called out from the city of man once again. They have to be convicted because they're tempted by the idolatrous paganism of the world around them. They have to be drawn to a place they don't even realize yet and commanded to go there by God's revealed word in the case of Abraham. And so in spite of these reasons for hope to wane, nevertheless, God's word and his will is continuing. There, In spite of these milestones in sovereign history, fulfilling God's word, be careful lest our vision becomes too narrow and we lose hope. Noah, again, the murder of Abel takes place in Genesis 4. And all of a sudden, the hope for man's future, especially in the minds, the hearts of Adam and Eve, would have just been decimated. Yet God is faithful and Eve bears another son. And through him, uh, Seth, the elect line continues. But think in Genesis 6, we won't cover all these passages this morning, but 1 through 5, the depravity of man is such that the whole world is collapsing in on itself. It's welcoming whole-scale judgment, and so it comes in the flood. If there was ever time to lose hope, again, this seems like a good opportunity. Yet God prepares a man who finds favor in his sight to make the instrument of salvation And though just eight people board that craft, nevertheless, the plans and purposes of God continue in spite of this judgment. And David, uh, prior to him, we're on the heels of the era of the judges. And this is one of the most wicked eras in history that I can think of. You think uh, uh, today is bad, and it is bad by certain measure for sure, But in Judges 25, 21, there is this proclamation, and it's preceded by stories that illustrate it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you go back chapters 19 through 21, it's some of the most graphic and grisly stories that you could possibly read. Just by way of summary and overview, a Levite, Procures for himself, he gets for himself a concubine, which means a secondary wife. So already, you have a guy who is supposed to be of the priestly line, Levite, in this compromised relationship. Now he's traveling with his concubine, and he enters into uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. He's seeking refuge in Gibeah, and just like at Sodom and Gomorrah, the inhabitants, the Benjaminites of Gibeah, are so insane in their sin that they demand this concubine, and beat on the door, as it were. And uh, the man who is harboring the Levite gives him his daughter, his virgin daughter, and a couple of his concubines. They are not satisfied. They demand that the traveling man, the Levite's concubine, come out. So finally she does. She is abused so thoroughly through the night. She has just enough strength to wander back, to, uh, you know, claw back to the doorstep where she was before they let her out to the uh, enraged masses, and she dies there. The Levite wakes up the next morning and says, I know what I'll do about this. And he cuts the body into 12 pieces and sends it to all the tribes of Israel. All the tribes of Israel are irate and they say, how could the Benjaminites do such a ghastly thing? So they declare war on them. So there's a civil war raging now and they defeat the Benjaminites. But in in their haste, they made a vow and said, we will never give a wife to any of these people. And then after they come to terms, the war is done and so forth, the dust settles They're like, well, we said we wouldn't allow any wives to be given to these people. Oh, I know what we should tell them to do. Let's have the Benjamites hide in the bushes and when the people come and the young ladies and stuff come to worship at Shiloh, they can just uh, kidnap wives for themselves. And then when they come to us, we just won't prosecute the crime. This is how bad things were getting. You talk about an era of languishing hope. This is the extent of things illustrated in the end of Judges. In these days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But there was hope. David would soon come, a king that would restore order of a sort and a dignity of a sort. The legacy of Israel would receive a great advance under him, especially as he pictured a king to come. And then finally, Jesus. Luke 1, 6-7, Elizabeth is barren, yet she has a child. And this child proves to be Elijah, as we mentioned before, that paves the way for Jesus. But think of the uh, context here. Now, there's a song by Chris Tomlin that I, I really like, I, particularly this line. The song's called Emmanuel. It's a Christmas hymn. Perhaps you'll recall these words. What fear we felt in the silent age, 400 years can he be found, but broken by a baby's cry, Rejoice in the hallowed manger ground. Then the chorus, Emmanuel, God incarnate, here to dwell. What fear we felt in silent age, that in that poem that refers to the 400 some years in between the testaments, where opportunity to despair abounded. Why? Because the political fortunes of Israel was on the ropes all the time, and there was no prophet. No special revelation was issued during that 4th century period. Is all hope lost? Sarai is barren. No prophet has existed for 400 years. The depravity is such that people are breaking down the door to rape and to kill women to death and then sanctioning, uh, kidnapping to make up for it. You know, you think of these moments in history. Is all hope lost? Well... God's signature history, heralding significant sons, says no. In spite of this 400 years of silence, it was broken by a baby's cry. Who was that baby, children? Who was the cry of the baby that broke the silence? That's correct, Jesus. And rejoice in the hallowed manger ground, a reference to the hallowed ground where God himself revealed himself to Moses on that day, and announced his covenant name, I Am. And so, in similar fashion, God incarnate, God became man at that hallowed ground, if you will, at the manger, signaling Emmanuel, which means God with us, God incarnate, here to dwell. So, there are prophetic